this is Jen, and you're listening to Paradox, a Mage the Ascension podcast. These bite-sized episodes are designed to get you up to speed and comfortable with Mage the Ascension rules and concepts. Reread the books so you don't have to, though we do recommend it. Without further ado, welcome to Paradox. Welcome to episode 16. I also want to say an extra welcome to all of my new listeners who found this podcast via my Mage the Podcast interview. I appreciate all of you and I hope you'll stick around. If there's anything that any of my listeners want to suggest as additional topics, please let me know either on the Dork Tales Discord server or in the comments. I do have episodes planned out, but it's good to know if there's anything specific that people are clamoring to learn about. With that, As I said, welcome to episode 16, Mechanics 101. Those who know a bit about Mage may realize that I still have two spheres to cover in their own episodes, but much like the Spirit and Dimensional Science episode, there is some additional context that can be useful to understand the last two spheres, Entropy and Prime, so those will be tackled in the new year. This week, we're covering the basics of the game mechanics, with a focus on magic as it's run in M20. This is intended as an introduction, and we'll be coming back to additional concepts that are mentioned here, but this felt like an appropriate place to come back around to the mechanical aspects of the game. So in the early episodes, we talked about the character sheet and the basics of how to play a World of Darkness game. However, to reiterate, attributes are your big stats. How strong you are, how much endurance you have, how charismatic or manipulative or smart you are, etc. If you are familiar with D&D, These are effectively the big six, but with the mental and social stats split into more categories. So your charisma stat in D&D covers charisma, manipulation, and appearance in World of Darkness, for example. These are mostly innate qualities, though they can be developed and therefore bought up with experience points. Abilities, on the other hand, are your D&D skills, things you've learned through your life and trained in. These are broken up into these very broadly defined categories. Your talents, which are more innate abilities, like whether or not you're an alert person or if you have the ability to lie. Skills, which are abilities that are less innate and or require more training or specific training, but aren't purely book learning type abilities. And of course, knowledges, which are the book learning type abilities, like science, but also very intelligence heavy abilities, like enigmas or investigation. In Mage, you also have the option to use secondary abilities. These are just abilities, whether talents, skills, or knowledges, that aren't on the character sheet, but that you can still put points into if you think your character would know those things. Also known as write-in abilities, though there's never enough room on the sheet to actually write them in, these are either highly specialized abilities, like the hyper-technology-focused ones you might pick for a technocrat, or simply niche abilities that people may or may not want to take. The important thing is that you don't get any extra points to spend on secondary abilities separate from the regular abilities. They all fall under the same umbrella as abilities. To construct your dice pool, the number of dice you will be rolling, players combine a relevant attribute and an associated ability. The sum of these dots, representing a character's proficiency, determines the number of 10-sided dice that are rolled. Additional modifiers, such as situational bonuses or penalties, can further influence the pool size. We'll talk about that in a minute. 90% of your dice rolls will either be your magic rolls, which just involves rolling your erite or enlightenment level, or will be one of these attribute plus ability rolls. The other 10% may be initiative rolls, a willpower roll, a single attribute only roll, 
or a more unusual role as determined by your storyteller. If you don't have dots in the particular ability that your ST asks for, there are a couple of options. For talents and skills, there's simply a penalty if you are only able to roll your attribute dots, but for knowledges, you cannot roll if you don't have dots in that knowledge. Your ST may also give a few different options for what you're able to roll depending on the situation, or you may just not be able to make that roll. There are certain attribute and ability combos that are used frequently. Perception and alertness for noticing things. Perception and awareness for noticing supernatural phenomena. That sort of creepy feeling people may get when exploring abandoned buildings or when someone feels like a ghost walked through them. Or that feeling of deja vu. Manipulation and subterfuge for lying or deception-based rules. Dexterity and melee or strength and brawl for certain attacks or intelligence plus one of the knowledges for knowing stuff about that knowledge. However, every storyteller does things slightly differently, so they may not even use some of these combinations depending on the circumstance or their own interpretation of the system. The core book and book of secrets have some additional recommendations for specific activities, but if you're not sure or don't want to waste time looking something up, then either let the player suggest a route to take or pick something that makes sense to you. So what about once you've rolled the dice? Every action in Mage has a difficulty rating, indicating the level of challenge. The default difficulty is 6, meaning you want to roll 6 or higher on your dice. However, Mage uses a sliding difficulty scale, so the difficulty could be as low as 3 or as high as 10. For a storyteller to determine the difficulty of any particular role, they can either take the suggestions from the books if they've looked up that activity before, or they can make a quick judgment and take the following into account. The complexity of the task, simpler ones will be lower difficulty. The consequences of failure, more severe consequences may mean a slightly higher difficulty. The specific circumstances of the moment, is there an immediate danger, an intense pressure, fear, a need for intense concentration? Or is it a lovely sunny day where the character has plenty of time to work on this? All of these things could affect the difficulty. Also, certain merits and flaws may modify the difficulties of specific types of roles but players should be aware of when their specific merits or flaws apply. Finally, the difficulty of magical effects is determined in a specific way that I will cover once we're discussing the magic system later this episode. It's important to note that there are difficulty modifiers and dice pool modifiers. Difficulty modifiers are more common as they can happen on the majority of rules and are usually based on external factors. They raise or lower the number you are trying to get on each die. Dice pool modifiers are when you add or subtract actual dice from your dice pool, and these are often due to internal factors, the most common being wound penalties, but could also include things affecting one's mental state or other specific circumstances, like needing two hands for something and only having one. I will elaborate more on wound penalties in a bit. Of course, the goal of rolling dice is to succeed. Generally, the more successes one has, the better the outcome is. However, for specific difficult rolls, there may be a certain number of successes that you must roll or the action will fail. This is called a threshold. For magical effects, there may be a required number of successes as well, but that will also be covered shortly. I'm going to be saying that a lot this episode. Everything is intertwined. <laughs> if you roll 10s on your dice, that's great. If you then have 4 dots and therefore a specialty in the attribute or ability you were rolling, and the specialty applies to the current roll, then you count those tens as two successes. However, if you roll any ones on your dice roll, they subtract from the number of successes you roll. If you roll more ones than you have successes, then you simply fail the roll. If you roll a one and you roll zero successes otherwise, 
venue botch, which is a critical failure and may result in amusing, ridiculous, or more dangerous consequences depending on the situation. To avoid a botch, or just because you want a better chance of success, you can spend a temporary willpower point to gain an automatic success. You can only spend one willpower per round, but you will regenerate willpower with sleep. And if you're trying to do something over several turns or rounds, also known as an extended action, then you can put more willpower into the action at a rate of one per turn or round. The terms are interchangeable. This success can be negated by rolling too many ones, but at least you won't botch. The overall flow of gameplay is structured into turns, scenes, and overarching stories, creating a dynamic narrative. A turn is the basic unit of time. Or a round. Like I said, they're interchangeable. The actual length of time for a turn can vary. During combat, breaking up the time into turns gives each character the opportunity to act, and a turn lasts about 3 seconds according to M20. Though I tend to make it more like 6 seconds, but either way, it's enough time to get out a few words and or take a specific action. The estimated time is just that, an estimate so the storyteller can make a decision on whether a player's requested action would take one or more turns. Out of combat, turns are subjective and practically irrelevant, so may take up to a few minutes. Larger segments of gameplay are known as scenes, which cover a single self-contained sequence of events and can include combat or non-combat elements. These can be anywhere from several minutes to a few hours, though the general rule of thumb is about an hour particularly when determining durations for magical effects. Scenes can transition seamlessly, or they may change based on narrative shifts, providing flexibility for storytellers and players alike. A chapter is a series of related but separate scenes. This usually covers about one gaming session and can represent hours, days, or even weeks in story terms. However, if you end a game on a cliffhanger, remember that the next game will still count for duration. Write down those active effects. A story is a connected series of related chapters and has a beginning, middle, and an end, often combined into story arcs where there are ups and downs and the chapters are focused on a particular theme, character, situation, or goal. A chronicle, on the other hand, is a series of story arcs spanning great lengths of time. Of course, there are shorter chronicles that encompass only one story arc or even one story and longer chronicles that have several different arcs. If you think of this in terms of novels, a chronicle is a novel series, and series lengths vary from trilogies to 20 books or longer. A shorter series may only have one story arc, but the longer ones may have several arcs or one encompassing grand arc. A book in that series would be a story that is built up from several chapters, and those chapters are built from a series of scenes, just like a game session is. Turns would probably equate to a couple of sentences at most, but is so inconsequential to the grand scheme of a book that it's hard to equate the two precisely. Another important concept is downtime. This is the time between events where nothing of particular importance happens. These are good time periods to gloss over between games or with a few sentences in the middle of a session. This is when characters can put time and effort into learning new skills or magic spheres, improving themselves in other ways, building relationships, research, or recovery from injuries. Often games, or at least scenes within a single game, cover a few hours or days of a character's life and doesn't usually allow for focused practice on something. But focused practice is not a particularly fun game idea, so downtime allows players to spend all that hard-earned experience on improvements to the character. 
Back to turns, scenes, and stories. During these, characters engage in a variety of actions that define their interactions with the world. Reflexive actions represent immediate responses to specific stimuli, enabling characters to react swiftly without consuming their entire turn. These are more or less automatic responses that require little conscious effort and include things like perception checks to notice things, short phrases like look out, and dodging an incoming attack. Though if there are multiple attacks coming at you at the same time, dodging all of them becomes nearly impossible. Simple actions are fundamental tasks that can be accomplished within a single turn, such as making an attack or casting a quick spell. In contrast, multiple actions allow characters to undertake more than one task simultaneously, reflecting their agility and proficiency in multitasking. However, when your mage tries to do several things at once, you need to divide your dice pool between those actions, also known as splitting the dice pool. Basically, first you figure out the dice pools you would normally use for each action, then pick the lowest, sorry, and that's the one you'll be using. Then you split that pool between the actions you wish to accomplish as you see fit. So it doesn't even have to be a 50-50 split. If you have four dice, you can use three dice on one and one on a second action. Or if you have six dice, you can use four dice on one action and two dice on another. Or three and three, if you really want. There are, of course, ways of getting around this, such as using time or mind magic, depending on what you're trying to do. For challenges requiring sustained effort, extended actions come into play. These are tasks that demand more than a single turn to complete requiring characters to dedicate their attention and resources over an extended period. Mechanically, this involves several dice rolls where you are trying to achieve a particular number of successes. Each roll will represent a certain amount of time passing, whatever seems appropriate for the action. And if your character is up against a deadline or a time limit, you may be limited in how many rolls you can make. If one of your rolls fails, that just means you make no progress at that point in time. However, botching a roll usually means that the entire effort fails. Finally, there are resisted or contested actions. These are interactions where the success of one character opposes another. Often these involve actions like one character hiding, dex and stealth, while another is trying to spot them, perception and alertness. One character lying, manipulation and subterfuge, while another tries to discern the truth, which can actually be done a variety of ways, like using empathy or their own knowledge of subterfuge, etc. Or willpower rules to resist effects of mind magic or other supernatural abilities. The difficulty is often the same for both characters, but may be modified by their specific situations. Whoever gets the most successes wins. Let's take a brief look at combat in Mage, without considering magic for the moment. The initiative rule establishes the order in which characters act during combat, Quick thinking and agility play crucial roles here, determining who seizes the moment and who reacts to the unfolding chaos. To figure out your initiative, you roll 1d10 and add that number to the number of dots you have in dexterity and wits added together. Storytellers may have different ways of handling this, such as rolling once at the beginning of combat or rolling at the beginning of each turn. But there's no botching an initiative rule, just rolling low, and ties are usually broken by whoever has the highest dex plus wit score. Movement during combat can be a strategic consideration, as characters traverse the battleground to position themselves advantageously or evade impending threats. However, some STs don't worry too much about the specifics of movement unless it's incredibly important to the fight. I'm one of them. 
There is a chart for how much distance one can travel per turn on page 401 of the core book, or you can just wing it. As mentioned, combat is structured into turns, each representing a discrete unit of time where characters take actions. On your turn, you can do a bunch of different things, like attack an opponent, cast a magical effect, talk to someone, prepare to do something, run away or hide, or complete a task while other characters fight. Attacks depend on what you're trying to do, but depending on the time period you're playing in and your character, you may shoot a gun, stab someone with a knife or a sword, punch someone, or cast a magical effect that does damage. The specific attack you do will have a particular dice pool, and in many circumstances, your opponent will have the opportunity to defend at least once. Defense involves dodging attacks using your dexterity and athletics, blocking using your dexterity and brawl, or parrying using dexterity and melee. However, it can also involve countermagic, which is basically a mystical dodge that can be accomplished either due to innate countermagic abilities in certain cases, or by a mage using their action to counter someone else's effect if it uses a sphere they themselves have knowledge of. There are also several optional rules in the core book around countermagic and anti-magic capabilities. Once a character is successful in an attack, the player can roll their damage dice. This is based on the weapon used and how many successes they got on their initial attack roll. There are charts in the core book that can help you determine how many dice to roll and what kind of damage it is, but for every success over the first on your attack roll, and that's after all of your opponent's defense successes have been subtracted from your successes, you gain an additional die of damage. Damage comes in several different forms and is based on what you are using for your attack. Blunt objects like fists or clubs, as well as psychic damage from mind magic, will do blunt force trauma, also known as bashing damage. On your character sheet, this is represented by a single slash in one of your health boxes. A normal person can resist some of that damage, also called soaking damage, by rolling a number of dice equal to their stamina rating at difficulty 6. Each success reduces the damage by one health level. Though for psychic trauma, a character rolls their willpower to soak it instead of their stamina. If a character fills all of their health boxes with bashing damage, the character will fall unconscious and additional damage will start slowly killing them. Damage from deadly trauma, bleeding, etc., is called lethal damage. Mundane humans cannot soak lethal damage. You cannot soak a gunshot wound or a stab with a sword. If a character's health boxes are completely filled with lethal damage, which is represented as an X in the health box, the character will bleed out and die. Certain kinds of damage, supernatural attacks, particular magical effects, other incredibly horrific attacks such as fire or acid, will cause what is called aggravated damage or egg damage. This is marked on the character sheet with an asterisk or a small star, or if you're writing it on paper, you can do an X with a straight line vertical through the center. That's basically the same thing. It also cannot be soaked, much like lethal, and has specific requirements in order to heal it with magic. If your character fills their health boxes, all of them, with aggravated damage, well, they're honestly probably better off dead. This may be easier with an example. So let's say Jen is trying to punch Kelly for some reason. Jen is stronger than average as she goes to the gym, but has a fairly average dexterity. Her dice pool for fighting with her fists is three dice, 
two for dexterity and one for brawl. She manages to get three successes, though. Huzzah! Kelly tries to dodge out of the way. But this came out of nowhere, so while he has four dice for a dexterity and athletics roll, he only gets one success and gets hit. At this point, Jen has three successes, minus Kelly's one success, for a total of two successes. Punching someone does bashing damage, and you roll your strength dots in dice, plus any extra successes. Jen has three dots in strength, and got one extra success, so she has four dice to roll. She gets three successes and one one, and ones do subtract from damage rolls like other ability rolls, so this is a total of two successes. And yes, you can hit someone and then do no damage. It sucks, but it happens. Anyway, Kelly takes two bashing from those two successes, although he can roll his three dots in stamina to soak it. He gets two successes and a one, and storytellers may or may not subtract ones from soak rolls. But in the games I run, both PCs and NPCs don't subtract ones from soak rolls, so in this case, Kelly would not take any actual damage from the hit. Once a character starts accumulating damage, they gain wound penalties. And we're back to the things I said we come back to. Wound penalties. These are the negative numbers listed on the health chart on the character sheet. This is one of the few times that you take actual dice out of your dice pool, as the more injured you are, the more difficult it is to accomplish tasks. The only dice pools that are unaffected by wound penalties are your avatar, soak pool, or arite rolls. For all other rolls, if your wound penalties subtract more dice than you have, you are unable to perform whatever task you are attempting to do. Healing damage takes time, unless magic is used, with bashing damage taking hours or a day at most, and lethal or aggravated taking anywhere from a day to a year. Page 406 of the core book has the recovery time chart, but it's important to note that the times listed are cumulative. So it takes five months to heal lethal or aggravated damage and go from incapacitated to crippled. One step up the health chart. Five months. Then it takes another three months to go from crippled to mauled. Healing extensive damage with life magic has its own risks, of course but it can get a mage back on their feet much faster and with fewer lasting issues than healing naturally. <sighs> that was a lot to get through, but we have one more important part of the game mechanics to talk about. How the heck do you actually do magic? We've been talking a lot about the esoteric aspects and the basics of spheres, like which spheres do what, but now we're going to look at the actual mechanics of building a magical effect and ruling for its success. This is still considered to be introductory, and it may raise more questions than it answers, but we have to start somewhere. Additionally, storytellers have so many different ways of handling this, whether due to the edition they first learned on, or their desire to have a more free-flowing and less mechanical approach. So, as with all aspects of Mage, I will be presenting the M20 version, and please take it all with a grain of salt. If you're running a game and want to do something differently, go for it. If you're playing in the game and your storyteller doesn't follow this, talk with your ST and learn how they're running things, as it will be easier than fighting to use specific M20 mechanics. Of course, if you want to stick to the book in all things, you can absolutely do that too. Let's get into it. 
How do you cast magical effects? Step one is to define the effect. Before delving into the magical mechanics, you will need to clearly articulate the magical effect you wish to achieve. Whether it's summoning a protective ward, manipulating time, or harnessing elemental forces, a well-defined concept serves as the foundation for the casting process. Collaborate with your storyteller or work with other people around your table to figure out precisely what you want to do. No one expects you to spit out a defined effect off the cuff, unless you pull it from one of the books, which is reasonable to do, especially when you're first learning. Once you've defined what you want to do, you need to identify the spheres that are relevant to your magical effect. At this point, we've covered what a lot of the spheres are capable of, but as you get more comfortable with Mage, you will be able to figure out what you want to do, whether you can do it, and how you want to do it without having to think through everything as separate steps. It just takes practice. At this point, you'll also want to consider how your mage does their magic. What is their focus? What instruments do they have on them? Or are they in a space where it's impossible for them to use certain things? What practices will they use to pull this off? It's the overarching question of mage. What does your character believe? These things may mean your effect will take longer, or that you'll be subject to fast casting penalties which is what happens when you try and create an effect in that three or six seconds you have in combat. It's not refined, probably not very pretty, but it will hopefully get the job done anyway, so long as you don't botch. There are optional rules for using rotes, which are basically defined effects or spells that your character has used over and over again, and that they can pull out of their hat at a moment's notice, and which therefore can negate fast casting penalties. But for the most part, rotes don't grant a mechanical advantage. As I believe we've mentioned on this podcast before, it can be good to have a few of those written down anyway, even if you aren't using the optional rules, in case you freeze up in the moment or aren't sure what you can even do with your spheres given a particular situation. A mage may also wish to use their abilities to enhance their magic, or their magic to enhance an ability check, or their instrument for their magic may in fact be violence, And there are some specific rules for those cases that we're actually going to skip today, because this is already going to be a lot, and that would just be a lot more. (laughs) After all of that, you've defined your effect, you've figured out if you can do it, what spheres you need, and you're at the next step. Now a difficulty rating will be assigned to the magical effect. The storyteller determines this based on the complexity of the effect, the prevailing magical resonance in the area, or any external factors that influence the casting. Difficulty levels typically range from 3, or a simple effect, to 9, near impossible. As a general rule, the difficulty starts at the highest sphere level involved in the effect, and then you add difficulty based on whether an effect is coincidental, vulgar, or vulgar with witnesses, and we'll cover what that means in a minute. Once that base difficulty is determined, Modifiers are added to either raise or lower the difficulty by up to three in either direction. Willpower can be spent for an automatic success in most cases, and quintessence can be spent to lower the difficulty, but it can never be lower than three. At this point, there are some diverging practices. M20 and some storytellers go straight to rolling dice, and then the successes get allocated after the roll is made. Other storytellers, including myself, generally look at how many successes you want to get in advance. So how many targets do you want to hit? How long do you want an effect to last? Or how much power or damage do you want the effect to have? There are charts in the core book for figuring that out, 
but feel free to play around with it as you see fit. Once the number of successes desired is determined, the player rolls and tries to get that many successes. If they reach at least half of the number they need, they can continue the effect the following round. Yes, it can be a little confusing, so feel free to go with the M20 version where after determining the difficulty, you then roll a number of dice based on your erite. Tens count as two successes if you have a sphere specialty that applies, and one subtract just like other dice rolls. Botching an erite roll can happen, and it can be really bad, especially when attempting more complicated effects. Based on the number of successes and any particular complications, the storyteller narrates the outcome of the magical effect. Let's have a little example to hopefully get the point across. Jen wants to summon a fireball. Shout out to T. Marson. Jen has forces four and is a hermetic, so this shouldn't be an issue. But she is showing off to her friend, a non-supernatural witness, and isn't trying to be subtle about what she's doing. Tisk tisk, Jen. Forces four is enough to summon a fireball, and she has prime two, so she's able to create it out of the ambient energy around her. She's a hermetic, so she traces out a chalk summoning circle on the ground, chanting in Latin as her friend watches in fascination. The difficulty for this role would be the highest sphere, forces four, plus the fact that it's vulgar with witnesses, plus five. Oof, that's the difficulty nine. Let's say she has a couple of modifiers due to her instruments or another boon. The specifics don't matter, but she's able to reduce the difficulty down to seven with those. She decides to spend a point of quintessence to lower the difficulty one more down to six, the standard difficulty. She really doesn't want to botch, so she spends a willpower. Good job. At this point, she will be rolling four dice, her erite score, looking for difficulty six. Since she is doing this to show off and not really hurt anyone, she doesn't need it to be big and powerful or do a lot of damage, so she's just looking for any number of successes. To briefly explore the path where she succeeds, she rolls two successes on her dice. Plus the one from the willpower means she has three successes and probably accomplishes what she set out to do. She records one point of paradox and her friend is astonished and or outright disbelieving of the show of magic. Who knows? If she just fails the roll, perhaps she rolls no successes and a one that cancels out the willpower she spent. Then nothing terrible happens. And actually, no paradox is generated because no magic actually happened. If she didn't spend that willpower and botches the roll instead, she gains 10 points of paradox, and the storyteller likely rolls for an immediate backlash. And depending on those successes, Jen's friend may become collateral damage. Oops. Speaking of complications and collateral damage, it's time to talk about the mechanics of paradox. As mentioned before, paradox is the consequence of changing reality. In a few episodes, we'll really dig into what paradox is and what it can do, but for now, we'll focus on the specific complications that paradox brings to the magic system. When determining difficulty, it's important to know whether an effect is coincidental, vulgar, or whether there are witnesses around. To briefly describe what this means, coincidental means it's probably something weird, but either is not noticeable by anyone else, like giving yourself dark vision. Or it's easily explainable, like electricity arcing from that overloaded breaker box. The general rule of thumb is if some random person on the street sees the magic and goes, ah yes, that is potentially something a human could do, then it's coincidental. 
if they look at it and go, ooh, that's definitely not something a human should be able to do, then it's probably vulgar. And vulgar means it very obviously breaks something about the way reality is supposed to work. Like turning off gravity or summoning fire out of thin air, both of which are very big examples. But it can also include things like melting a door handle. Unless you have a spray bottle that is obviously filled with some sort of door melting acid that you developed. Right? Witnesses are anyone whose life does not include intimate experience with an active supernatural world. What this means is other mages, werewolves, spirits, vampires, etc. do not count for the purposes of witnesses. However, there is no increase in difficulty if there is more than one witness. One is more than enough to have the weight of consensus reality on your shoulders. As an aside, too many coincidental effects in a short time frame, like a fight or a single scene, and reality may begin to get suspicious of you and those around you through the domino effect. This is an optional rule where for every two wild coincidental effects in a single scene, a storyteller may add plus one to the difficulty of subsequent coincidences, and the penalty adds up too. Personal effects that only affect the mage casting the effect should remain immune to the domino effect if you choose to use it. Once an effect is either successful or not, the storyteller determines whether paradox comes into play. If the effect was coincidental and successful, there is no paradox. If the effect was vulgar and successful, a single point of paradox is generated and recorded on a character sheet. Once a sufficient amount of paradox is accumulated, approximately five, or if there's a sufficiently dramatic moment, the storyteller can roll for paradox backlash. They pick up one die for every point of paradox the character has accumulated, including permanent paradox from technocratic enhancements or other factors, and rolls them against a difficulty of six. Each success means that one point of paradox is discharged to the backlash. The effects of the backlash can vary depending on how many points get discharged, but it can be as simple as some damage, or a small flaw caused by the accumulation of paradox, or if enough successes are rolled, it could mean a visit from a cranky paradox spirit who wants to know why you've been messing with reality. Really, there is a lot of room to be creative here, but if you've only rolled a couple of successes, it could just as easily be a migraine and a nosebleed as a few points discharge. Whatever points don't discharge, stay on the paradox wheel until they are dealt with. If a mage botches a magical effect, as in my example I just gave, the accumulated paradox is much worse. A botched coincidental effect gains one point of paradox per dot in the highest sphere used in the effect. A botched vulgar effect without witnesses gains one point plus one point per dot in the highest sphere used. A botched vulgar effect with witnesses gains two points plus two points per dot in the highest level sphere used, which is why a forces four fireball that is botched gets two points of paradox plus eight points of paradox, which gives you ten points of paradox. And a botched effect might provide the storyteller with that dramatic moment they were looking for in order to roll all of your backlash. Finally, every gaming group has its nuances. I've mentioned several times different ways that I do things or other storytellers I know have done things, and there are rules from older editions of Mage that people like to continue using or that make more sense to them. There are optional rules all over M20 that you or your group may decide to use or not use. 
So long as it works for you and your table, that's what matters. However, there are a couple of these so-called house rules, optional rules, etc., that I want to mention because I like them. But I believe they don't actually come from the World of Darkness line of games. M20 states that rolling a 10 when you have a specialty grants you two successes instead of one. In our mage games on Dork Tales, we have the option to do that, or we can use the exploding 10s or 10 again rule, where 10s get re-rolled, and there may or may not be another success. If you roll a second 10, it keeps re-rolling until you stop rolling 10s. If you have a specialty that affects initiative, this can mean initiative rolls into the 20s or even higher if you roll several 10s in a row. Possible, though unlikely. We have had it happen, though. We also allow 10s to explode on magic rolls, erite rolls, even without a specialty. Because we're mages and we like that. Another potential house rule is if a character has zero dice in a particular pool, usually due to a penalty of some kind, because otherwise they should have at least one in an attribute. They still have the option to roll a chance die. One single die. If you get a 10, you can still somewhat succeed the action. But if you roll a 1, then it's a really, really bad botch. I believe that this is used more in Chronicles of Darkness, but it's still an option if it's something you would like to use. I think that's enough for now, and I'm sure I skipped over several mechanics that someone wanted to hear about or that I simply missed or forgot about, but this podcast is intended to build up skills and knowledge over time, hopefully without info dumping too much at once, though I'm pretty sure this episode pushed that limit. If I have missed something important, or even if you would like further details about a specific mechanic, feel free to leave a comment or find me on the Dorktales Discord server. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for an episode about a core concept in Mage, the Avatar. What is it, and what does it really do? You've been listening to Paradox, a Mage the Ascension podcast, and you can find us wherever you can find podcasts. If actual plays are up your alley, check out Dorktales on twitch.tv slash dorktales or youtube.com slash dorktales. Find us on the Dorktales Discord server or check out our website at dorktales.ca. We are currently streaming a Mage the Victorian era game on Saturdays. Our Patreon subscribers have early access to the Technocracy Zero Sum game, which is also starting to roll out on YouTube for the general public. And we have several Mage one-shots and a short-run chronicle called Breaking Tradition on YouTube. Additionally, we are starting to roll out our Mage the Victorian era game in podcast form over on the Dork Tales Podbean channel, also found wherever you can find podcasts. Finally, as always, there's also all of our other amazing content. Thanks for listening, and remember to always keep your magic coincidental, unless it's Fireball. <laughs>